Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. I'm very excited to welcome this next composer, a protege of Oscar-nominated composer John Powell. He's become a sought-after talent contributing additional music to many of Hollywood's major franchises, including How to Train Your Dragon, Solo, A Star Wars Story, Pirates of the Caribbean, Wreck-It Ralph, Rio, and Despicable Me, among others. As lead composer, he scored drama thriller Promising Young Women starring Carey Mulligan, which premiered at Sundance 2020. His other credits include NBC Universal's How to Train Your Dragon Homecoming Holiday Special and Sony's PlayStation's action platformer video game, Knock 2. The composer is Anthony Willis. How's it going? Good, Matthew, and thank you so much for having me. This is uh, really fun. It's, I'm so excited that uh, Promising Young Woman is coming out, and it's really it's really great to you know come back to it and, and talk about it. Yeah, I've had such a blast listening to the whole, uh, the whole album that's up on Spotify now, and yeah, the artists that they have on there it's really great oh yeah yeah no I, i'm a total imposter on that track <laughs> on that album uh but it's i never thought i'd uh end up on a on an album with paris hilton so <laughs> and among the obviously fantastic capital records artists that they had do some awesome covers and some really really great new songs as well yeah for sure but so uh, anthony would you say that you had a much of a musical childhood uh yeah i mean Actually, my parents lived, um, when I was really young, they lived in America, which mm. for me was really, really fortunate in the end because it gave me a U.S. passport. Mm. And so many of my composer friends who've they've fought the battle of, of, of coming here and, and making a life and a home in the business. But I was really lucky that I, I, I was able to move here without that feeling of, you know, I think there are enough things about trying to get into the business that tell you to go away <laughs> that having you know having that was was a real blessing and you know my parents fought really hard to to get me a passport so so you know we did live when i was young in the states and then yeah most of my childhood was spent in london um and i went to boarding schools outside of london where i which had really great musical um you know musical facilities and training so i was really lucky with that and uh yeah i sort of Basically, I started in London, kept heading, kept heading west. I went to my first school. I was a chorister in uh, Windsor, which is about forty minutes out of London, um, where really I had just a great um, musical training. There are some other composers that did that kind of thing when they were younger, like Harry Gregson Williams, obviously being one of the most well known, and Dave Buckley, and um, there's some really it's it's just a really great musical grounding. And then I went to high school in Marlborough. And then I went to uh, undergrad in Bristol. And then I, you know, so I just kept heading west and eventually uh, went to USC. And, uh, 
and did the scoring program there, which was really helpful. And obviously there's a really strong alumni, you know, network for that. And uh, yeah, so that, that was, that was some of my education and background, you know, and as you know, Matthew, like so much of it is really self-discovery. So no matter what, where you go, it really has to come from just, I think your, your own, your own hard work sitting in a room, unfortunately, and fortunately. Right. Yeah. I mean, in that regard, I mean, I studied pop music in, in school, not film scoring, and I feel like I'm catching up in terms of learning orchestration and all of that now, but feel blessed that I had a lot of time in front of a computer just making music and hearing it back immediately. Yeah. No, I think it's great. I mean, not to discourage like undergrad courses that specifically do film music, but I think when you're 18, like you, so much of the technique of film scoring is um, is seasonal. And as the tech changes, like the tech now is so different to how it was when I when I started as an assistant ten years ago. Um, that you know, why why spend your college years learning that when you can be like learning what you love, and maybe things you'll never use again, but just things that are going to add to your personality. And mm-hmm. you know, I I think that it's really cool that you study pop music. You probably write way better pop music than other film composers, and that. I think more than ever is where we're moving to in film music. Film music that sounds like film music, I think, is is you know you don't that you're, you're showing your hand if you mm. sound oh that sounds filmic. Well, you know probably therefore it sounds like something people have experienced before, which can be a great thing because it's something you know filmmakers rely on to to make um, the audience feel at home in their movie. But it immediately limits you to the kind of experience you're going to be having. Um, anyway, that's a that's a bigger topic. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your assistantships, uh, but out of curiosity, did that start like immediately after school, even during your time at USC? Or yeah. So I, um, you know, the obviously there's some really great film scoring programs for especially for postgrad. Columbia in Chicago is a really good one. Um, USC is a really good one. There's cool extension program at UCLA. Um, but I just think the connections because USC, you know, the what used to be called SMP TV when I did it, I think it's now called scoring for screen because of the just alumni base and the connections, you really do get introduced to some wonderful, um, wonderful people and like, and, and make, you know, real heavy hitters in the business. We had, we had a really cool internship not, not an internship, a seminar with uh, Harry Gregson-Williams, who I'd always known about and, and actually coincidentally he'd been the musical director of a, of a children's opera that my sisters had been a part of. Uh, like this was right before he himself moved to LA mm. and, you know, was probably, probably it was a gig. I've never asked him, but it was probably a gig that, you know, he did just for extra money as a composer and, you know, being in London, there's, there's a really great business in London, but it's much smaller. Mm. Um, so, you know, making a living as a composer, then he probably had all sorts of gigs and students and that he was doing. And it was right before he, right before he then went on to be the, the Harry that we all know and love. Um, anyway, so coincidentally, he, he did a really great seminar with us and I, you know, it was one of those moments I thought, gosh, if I can't, if I can't match up to, to, to him, I mean, not match up to him. Of course I couldn't match up to him. Uh, if I couldn't, um, uh, if I couldn't 
pique his interest, shall we say, with what I could do, I mean, what what was the point? You know, I should. I guess in life you have those moments where you go, if I can't, if I can't hit this mark, I pr- it's it's a way of the universe telling you, well, maybe this isn't the right thing for you. Um, and then of course you stress yourself out and go, well, I don't want that to be the case, so I have to succeed with this. So anyway, we did a great. Um, he you know he did a great seminar and we gave us some cues to do, and I probably took forever on them, whereas now I I know how to do them. But um, anyway, he invited me to intern for him and. You know that was really wonderful um and then he in fact moved back to london um and i ended up uh going to assist Tato Pereira, who's a wonderful guitarist and a composer does a lot of a lot of animation and i did a couple of movies with him and you know that was that was great and i learned a lot about a lot about music that i didn't know then i met john who really changed my life for sure in that i really I saw something in his music that I, I love so much that I I just wanted to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was luck. And again, a lot of it was just kind of grabbing the bull and making sure you do your best. Well, I heard you guys play tennis or something, right? Oh, uh, well, yeah. When we first met, we played tennis. Yeah, that's true. How, who did you hear that from? Uh, some other interviews. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. I've mentioned it before, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we we did. And and John um is uh he's an aspiring composer and a professional tennis player in in an in a in an alternate universe for sure. Uh no, he's he's just a a really lovely person in every way. Um and I think it it shows most of all in his music, but but you know, the that is sort of who he is in every way. Um yeah, so that you know, that was really the biggest thing that happened to me in in LA and um, it's been like, it's really been a dream come true. I think it's it's very rare you get to do things that you never thought you would. Mm. And being in John's orbit was certainly one of those things. Yeah. I mean, I learned a lot just from talking to him for an hour and a half once. So I can't imagine what it was like, you know, working with and for him and, and also having him recommend you for gigs too. Yeah, he, he. Yeah, I think when you got John on the right topic, it just comes tumbling out, and it's kind of like, wait, I need to. Am I recording? Great, for sure. Well, I'm curious. So, I mean, you've you've worked with so many incredible people, and like, what are some of like the big takeaways you've taken from from each of them in terms of uh, applicable skills that you think have helped your own composing career? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, to think about this for a second. Um, what are some great skills? I mean, I think the ability, one of John's real strengths and something I think he he prides himself on is his melodic sense. And I think it all comes down to like, the more, the more convincing the melody in terms of how true it is to what it's trying to say, the more you're going to capture your, the hearts of the hearts and, and uh, seatbelts of the audience you're with, the more they're going to go with you. Mm. Um, I think he's always said to me, it's like, it's like being authoritative because if you make the filmmaker feel comfortable and go, yeah, no, I'm in, I'm genuinely in a, a mythical world of Vikings and dragons, you know, and you can convince them of that, which he did. Um, I mean, that's just such a powerful, that's just such a powerful tool. So, you know, the melodies are the things that that's the starting point for that suspension of disbelief 
and so that's just something I I think I I think I thought I knew what a good film tune was before I met John, and then by meeting him I and working with him, I saw into what what that really means, and it's a, you know it's a really a, I think it's a being a great melodist is like a lifelong pursuit, you know, of the Holy Grail. For sure. I feel like it's something that's also kind of been lacking in, in, I mean, we think about like classic film scores, I think a lot of them are very melodically driven. And then that seems to have kind of gone a little more out of fashion recently. So it's really refreshing to hear it in, I guess, those kinds of animated projects and also just really anything John does. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, obviously like melody, therefore, if it's world building, right, if you're trying to build universes, it, it informs style. Um, mm. And if you put a melody that's very romantic in a in a movie that doesn't where it doesn't belong that's going to work in the opposite way for you so what a theme what a film needs and what kind of theme that film is asking for it, it, it really depends so much on the movie but you know i guess if you've got one universe where you're just using color and another way you're using color that's communicated with a very elegant choice of notes and then it's like okay that score you know which one's going to take you somewhere you've never been before scientifically it's probably going to be the one that doesn't just have the colors all on a on a harmony that's you know very sustained if you can find that marriage between color and an original collection of harmonic implication you're going to go somewhere new which is you know what we're all trying to trying to do i think yeah very much so and I mean, and just to like take it back for a sec to uh, How to Train Your Dragon Homecoming, because uh, I love that score. And it's so funny because a lot of it is those themes that John did. And then, yeah, just, you know, re rethought and, and still feeling exactly like the universe of the films. Like, how challenging was that? It was uh, a huge honor to do that. And, and, you know, a lot of people go, oh, well, it's just a short. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't know what How to Train Your Dragon means to the composing community. Like, this is like a thing that's kind of, you don't want to be the person that, that you know, messes up. So yeah, no, there's lots of new themes. I think a third of it's John's, uh, sorry, there's lots of the original themes. A third of it's John's themes are rearranged. And obviously like that short very much honors the first movie. So there's some really cool, chances to call back, you know, themes in, in certain ways. And then John very sweetly invited me to write some new themes. Um, and he's, and it was completely his idea, which was brilliant. And I never would have thought of it myself. I probably never would have had the confidence to think of it myself. And it's mm -hmm. something he himself is amazing at doing in this dragon sequels is going, okay, well, we've got a new, we've got a new idea here. And, one of the things that's amazing about John's melodies is the way he attaches them to ideas as opposed to just specifically characters, which I think has such a, um, it has such an elegant and sophisticated feeling for a movie. If it's like, oh, we're seeing a character, it's sort of, and you hear their melody, obviously that can be amazing. And in the Star Wars universe, for example, that's, that's really cool the way that that's very clear. But in the Dragon movies, it's often, well, we've got a new We've got a new th storytelling theme here. So we've got loss or we've got, re you know, being, you know, finding a lost love. And so in Dragon 2, John did a theme for that. And, um, you know, Homecoming was the same. John was like, well, why don't we have a theme for memory? 
so the the new you know the main central theme in that is a is a memory theme which i wrote which i just did my best to evoke you know if you analyze it you'll probably find there's like some very specific motifs but i tried i tried to write it in a way that in its own right it's a good melody Hmm. Um, and that was kind of the emotional backbone and then um, it was really cool to reference uh, you know reference the existing themes as well and i mean from there then like out of curiosity what project do you feel most proud of in terms of your own like musical voice like that's 100 percent like or maybe that doesn't define you but that that was really exciting and that that feels authentic to to just truly you as opposed to being in the shadow of any other type of composer helping them out it's a, a great question i think i'm still i'm still working on that and i'm still waiting mm-hmm. for that um but i think that uh that's a really interesting question of whether i in theory the music should be authentically the films mm. And obviously the composers that we that we love and admire so much have a way of serving the film, but it is just so distinctively their personality. Um, and I think, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what that's gonna be. Uh I mean, I I remember when I first was sort of writing my first compositions and I was like, Yeah, but how do you know what you like and what you sound like? And it's amazing how you you do just you you go, okay, I get that they went left and that's really cool and what that ended up with, but I want to go right. And those kind of success, you know, that succession of choices, what defines, you know, people's taste and their personality. Um, it's amazing how just the more music you write, the more specific you become. Um, and so there's definitely things that I think people will start to see in the way I do things. And even the you know, even the arrangements and additional music I do, there's a certain way that people call me for a certain thing, um, you know, it's, uh, which, which is great. Obviously, it's, it's, it's very strange composing because on the one hand, you, you need to be a chameleon. On the other, the people that are really sought after have a very specific thing, um, which I think is, a, is an interesting paradox. Yeah, and it's also interesting how that thing can change. Like, I mean, Hans, for example, with like Rain Man being one of the biggest projects he did at one point, and then I don't think of that as like the Hans Zimmer sound, you know, or or John with Born. Like that, that almost seems like such a weird one in the in the catalog by comparison. Yeah, of course. I I think I guess if Born did if John did a Born movie now, I think you'd. I don't know. If you really analyze a lot of the Bourne, though, it's, I mean, it, there's a cue called Escape for Tangiers, and you listen to it and you just go, wow, that's, that's taking, it's like what, it's like what Mozart did for Haydn. That's taking a style and then that's doing it in the most interesting and virtuosic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know. I guess, I think you can see John's personality shining in all his music. Um, there's just an in, there's a there's a sort of inventiveness and joie de vivre that I think just you know and that's why he's he's so loved for sure. Um, so yeah, to to pivot over to promising young woman, what can you tell us about the film, musically speaking, or, and and um, you know the challenges of you know scoring such a film? Yeah, I mean it was uh, it was such a for you know my first serious feature. I've done a couple of small movies and. Um, 
before it, but it was, uh, you know, I guess as a composer, you wish for something that immediately just comes along that's totally in your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, homecoming was pretty in my comfort zone because I, you know, on the one hand, I've got a huge help from John that he's defined the world, he's defined a lot of the tone. And then <laughs> Promise a Young Woman was definitely the opposite of that in that it's a very original film. Um, and so the way to do it, not only is there not, it's not like a sequel or, or, or something that's part of a franchise. It's, there isn't really a film like it. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, even temping the film, I think was, was challenging because there's, there's no kind of script with which to do it. So, um, so, you know, there's just no blueprint for, for a film like this. And, you know, Emerald knew right away that she wanted you know, a really cool pop soundtrack. And I remember her first emailing me and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm temping it with the Holy Trinity, Wagner and Britney. And I can't remember what the third thing she said was, but I was thinking, gosh, I, I literally have no idea what this, this film is. And, you know, wanting, she just really asked me for advice about, you know, what do you think of, I, and, and as somebody I knew in a, in a, in a friendly way, although I didn't know each other well, I just, you know, I wanted to help her out. I, I wasn't necessarily like, I'm sure you feel this as well as a composer. You don't just want to be like, I'll do your thing. I mean, obviously you want to do it, but you, you don't want to be like, yeah, no, pick me, pick me. You want to be like, well, let me help you make sure you get what you want for your film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I remember her describing it as a dark thriller comedy. And I remember thinking, again, I, I just can't see this film yet. Like I can't imagine the tone of it. And then anyway, eventually, some months later, she did send it to me and uh, and I watched it. And then the, the real standout thing is, is Carrie Mulligan and her performance and her character and the character Emerald Road. And that really starts to, that that to me was what the score lie. Mm. And then I understood, and I understood the film. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it's kind of, it's basically a contemporary it's a, it's a classic thriller with like a contemporary twist. Mm. So it very much lives as a counterpart to the pop, the pop soundtrack. And how we arrived at that was, you know, really just through Emerald. I mean, I, I remember thinking, okay, I have to do something really edgy and cool, but the sort of a lot of the edge is, is sort of in the humor and in the, and in the pop. And em- what Emerald really liked when I sent in my demos was the kind of classic thriller, sound and so that's um you know that's the direction we ultimately went right i've heard that the score is very uh i want to say like hand-holding but it really does try to like lead the audience to the next bit and kind of doing so uh ties in with the theme of the film yeah i mean emerald really wants to play with you and 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 leave you questioning what kind of um what kind of film you're in and and it shifts genres and i mean i I think it's a very dangerous game to play with music because you're kind of, you're knocking people out of the film. Mm. Um, but somehow the tone of, of the film is so, is so original that, and so kind of skillfully navigated just in the, in the writing and in the performances that, you know, one minute you're, I'd say within a single frame of the film, you're kind of questioning your own humanity, disgusted at human behavior, and you're really entertained and you're kind of laughing darkly. And it's, it really isn't, it really is original in the way that it makes you feel. 
you know, I think it obviously it covers, you know, a lot of important issues, but it does it in a way that entertains you rather than kind of preaches at you, uh, which is such a clever, such a clever way of doing that. So, yeah, I mean, no, the, the score definitely, uh, you know, de it definitely leads you to some romantic places and some very kind of caperishly horror, you know, horror, horror moments and, and then some real, real realism. And, you know, there's a lot of different components to it, but I think that's why Emerald really wanted a thematic score because she wanted, she wanted a central theme for the character that could have a lot of variation, you know, that, that is a kind of through line. Right. And then, I mean, just another thing I noticed, I mean, the film is very much a feminist film with uh, a lot of the, the crew, like there's two female music supervisors, the whole soundtrack is all women. And then they had your track at the very end. Was that a, a thing that came up in discussion in terms of like, you know, having a bell composer work on the project? That's a great question. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that that was, that was a concern. Um, I think, you know, what Emerald said is that, you know, I think she would love to have, she would love to have, I think she just wanted to find a voice for the film, whether that came from a female composer or a male composer, I think didn't, didn't matter. I mean, I think, yeah, she would have optically loved to work with a, with a woman. And I, I think had I not written um, the theme that I did, I think uh, I almost I certainly wouldn't have done the film. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, thing. I think that there's a lot of concern about that right now. And and ideally I think it would be a world where we, we just hire the best person for the job. So I'm always curious to hear people's take. Yeah. I mean, obviously the last thing, uh, I mean, you know, the last thing I want is, is for anybody to think, well, this is such a female um, led movie. Um, you know, oh, what a shame that, you know, oh, this male composer took that opportunity from somebody. And I think just in my experience of the business is that getting an opportunity to be a lead composer on a big movie is a very, very difficult thing. Um, even with, you know, 20 plus additional music credits on big films, it, it really is, you know, it's like you're launching your own business. It's like, you know, there's plenty of um, really fantastic, trying to think of a good analogy, like, uh, you know, water providers in LA. Like, you know, you can buy Fiji water and, and who, you know, who, who are you to say, no, buy my water. It's, you know, it's slightly cheaper and it's better for you. You know, that's a really hard thing to achieve. And I think the confusion in composing is that, you know, there's a, there's a sort of disconnect between music by a named person. And then the reality, which is music by an established brand that you know what you're going to get. It's going to be reliable. It's going to come in time. It's already got a fan base. And so, you know, if you get an opportunity, you can't pick your opportunities, I guess, is, 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 is what I'd say. And uh, right. this, this one just happened to be in my orbit and I happened to respond to it creatively um, and in a way that, you know, that Emerald really liked. And which is obviously, you know, the name of the game, i.e. Putting, putting the film, the, you know, creative process above any other agenda. And of course, in, in, in LA, there are a lot of, in any business, there are a lot of other factors that determine who who uh who's hired so and all you know all for good reasons 
you know, people who are proven, people who have have had have many more relationships, people who have, you know, have strong um, creative bonds. So um, it is, you know, I mean, getting into the getting into that conversation, it is really hard for any composer to break out. You know, I think there's definitely been great progress, um, and uh, you know, there's more and more content, and I think, you know, I think people are really starting to. Um, starting to get it, um, but yeah, I hope I'm not seen as the enemy uh, of that because I, you know, that's certainly not my intention. No, for sure, and I think that just from what I heard with that toxic on the soundtrack, I just thought you did such an amazing job, and I'm super excited to listen to everything. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was that was really fun. I mean, um, you know, uh, I I think really the the genius of that of that. Toxic, use of toxic in the film really lies in just how God, what like what an awesome track i think it's like one of the best pop songs of all time especially the way the original track's produced mm. and like that riff is awesome and like it it's kind of set up for success for sure uh what's well, the last question here before going on to the final segment for the show but when i spoke to uh john he told me his three still tips for being a better composer one be a storyteller to be an artist composer slash composer and three, to be true to your own love of music. What would be your advice to any aspiring composers listening in? That's a great question. Um, I think like focus on, on broad strokes, like things that are things that are more fundamentally com- compositionally. Like the more you the more you write, the more you get a sense of what's the thing that's going to affect the outcome of the music the most. You know, like just so, just to give an example of that. Okay, you want to write a piece. You know what? You want to write a beautiful piece for cello solo. Make sure that you you're in the right key. You know, get yourself in a place that that's going to deliver. Don't necessarily worry about very small fine tuning details in orchestration before you've hit you've hit that sweet spot, because then everything else will come into place, and those decisions are kind of. I mean, it's one of the beautiful things about composing is that so much of it is limited. And we and like you know, it's a cliche to say, but composers work really well with limitations. Um, you know, if every instrument could play in any register, I think we we'd just be so spoiled for choice that we we never finish anything. Um, and so it's it's kind of harnessing the limitations to create something that's ultimately much more than the sum of its parts. You know, in the best music, you don't hear those components, but you, you know, they're the things that have defined what it ultimately can become. So that's 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 been a big one for me. I mean, it took me a long time to figure that out. I think, you know, I'd I'd spend forever fiddling, 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 fiddling with voicings and fiddling with orchestration and going, and probably if you're doing that, something big needs to change. You're 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 in the wrong key. You're in the wrong you're in the wrong feel. You're in the wrong overall rhythmic groove. I've written cues where I've, I've just like, I've nailed the arrangement. I've, you know, it's all working, but the fundamental feel isn't right. Mm. And so, you know, if you, if you want a happy life, if you can just make it, you know, make that decision and also don't, don't be afraid to, um, to go down a route to prove that it's the wrong route. I think that's something that's okay because I mean, guess what, again, back to, to limits. I mean, there's, there's only so many ways to set out. There's infinite outcomes 
but there's only so many directions you can actually head out the door in. And so, you know, go away and prove it's the wrong one. And then guess what? You, you'll never go, oh, I wonder if I'd done that this way, it would have been better. You'll know, and then you'll feel empowered by that. And you have the confidence to actually, you know, when you when you actually then go, okay, well, I'm going to go this way now. You're going to have the comp. You're going to be even more sure that it's the right direction, and you'll be more receptive to the wonderful intricacies that you will discover on that on that route. I know that's a bit hocus pocus, but it, but I think that that I think that that's really helped me for sure. Well, with that, I think we'll go on to the last segment for the podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic, and you can say as much or as little as you want about it. Okay. So the first one is uh, DAW. Okay, DAW. Um, Logic X, open to transition. I don't know. There's certain things about Logic X that I, I'm like a big one for region soloing as opposed mm-hmm. to track soloing. I just like, I'm very color-coded and I really, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could ever leave Logic for that reason just because it's because of those kind of functions. But I think, I don't know, if I walked into a room and somebody had emulated my workflow in another door and like, you know, was quick to answer if there were certain things I wanted to know how to do, I, I could totally, I could totally see myself moving. I don't know. They say it takes like, what, three weeks? Oh, is that it? Yeah. That was uh, about, yeah. I think for Cubase for me, it was about that, but I've since kind of gone back to logic. Oh, really? I, yeah. I mean, I've been back and forward, like, you know, when I was interning for Harry, like I very much jumped into Cubase. And then when I went to work for Hator, I was like, felt like my hands were initially in the first week that my hands were tied behind my back. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. I was so, I was so um, comfortable in Cubase, you know, and of course, yeah, no. So anyway, but yeah, I think that hopefully we're getting to a place where that, you know, the tools, one of my least favorite questions I remember growing up is my you know, extended family would ask me about music and they're like, oh, well, does that help you with the harmony? Does that help you with this and that? And I just wanted to be like, no, it's a tool. And and I think, you know, it really is just a tool. It's like using an email browser. It doesn't, it shouldn't determine the content of what's in your in your in your email. <laughs> and and nor does it nor does it with our music. You know, it's it's just a tool. Uh, obviously there are you know tools that we're very in love with and we spend way too much time in but uh you know i I don't think it should define composers for sure um next we have uh pianos well let's do real first so i was talking to somebody the other day and they go yeah my school we had uh we had steinways in every practice room and i was thinking oh my god like i I remember my practice rooms at, at bristol were like i think it did more damage than good like depending on what piano you practiced on, you're either going to be worse after the the session, and then you'd go and play in the recital room that had like I think one had a nice Yamaha and the other did have a nice Steinway. But I I was the kind of pianist that you know I was I did piano performance as a minor um, alongside composition, and I was a good pianist by kind of your average Joe standards, but a really fairly medium pianist compared to some of the performance majors um so i i was very sensitive about the piano i needed all the help that i could get i think uh in terms of the instrument i had so um anyway i mean now i i recently got a little boston upright which i love um and it's really nice to have an acoustic piano you know and i'm lucky that 
the studios I've, I've been lucky to work in generally have good pianos. So I think composers generally stop playing real pianos enough because we're so used to our samples and we just, I don't know, at least I've found that. I've kind of, you spend so much time at your, you know, your workstation that you kind of go, oh, I don't want to sit down at the, at the piano because there's pressure to write something or play something good. And I just for a moment would like not to have that pressure. Um, but no, and then when samples, you know, cinema samples, piano and blues has been pretty great. Um, I really like the Alicia Keys sample for like more pop, like very clean piano. Mm. That's a yeah, nice I love that one. one too. Yeah. It's funny. Um, it's actually, it's out of phase too. I don't know if you've ever tried putting it in mono. <laughs> no, I haven't. Yeah. Oh, really? That actually just adds to the, you know, the width. <laughs> oh, interesting. That's cool. Um, yeah, no, that's a fun one. Yeah, I, to be honest, I haven't really. I mean, I, I know that like Spectrasonics, what was the Spectrasonics one? Oh, uh, they, Keyscape, key, right? Keyscape, yeah, that's got like a bajillion keyboards and things like that. But um, yeah, I'd, uh, yeah, I mean, I, the piano samples are really, really fantastic now. And they've been pretty good for, for a while. Um, so it's, it, you know, obviously, I think when you start recording real instruments, you start to go, oh, piano and blue, it just feels a little. It feels a little toy-like. It, it lacks a little richness, you know. Um, but but in context, when you're in demo world, it's, it's really really good. Yeah. On that for the next one, uh, do you do a lot of audio in your your mockups, or is it mostly software, and then you replace everything at the very end? When you say audio, do you mean like recording like live audio or turning things into audio? Uh, like recording guitars, recording oh. know, dulcimers, things like that. Um, not. To, I mean not typically on the films that I work on. Um, it, it completely depends on the project, but if it's like, mm -hmm. if it's something that's budgeted to be recorded properly, the focus is generally on like writing efficiency um, and, you know, wowing them with the demo. And, you know, we can do so much with demos now, almost too much. Um, you know, not that like, yeah, there's certain instruments that if you, like an acoustic guitar, if you go and record that, you're going to get people really excited. I think early on in the demo stage, yeah, absolutely. You want to, you know, you want to get involved with that and, and, uh, you know, make your music sing right away, especially if you're trying to win over a client or you're trying to land a gig. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that if the colors imply the right things, you can do a lot with the sense to at least get the creative process and the conversation going. But, you know, and then and then just sort of think about, okay, how can I produce this the absolute best? But no, yeah, guitars is a common one to get involved with those early on. Solo strings sometimes. Um, but, you know, other things, it's... I think that you know, composers like John and Henry are obviously lucky that realism, like, re like some samples are, are really focused on realism. They're, they're heading right to the... Like, I think that like the new Spitfire... Abbey Road ensemble library. I mean, I haven't used it, but I imagine it sounds so final that it's, it sounds like something that's just ready to go into a TV show. And the kind of movies that, um, that Henry and John do, they do have budgets to do things properly. So it's really about the creative process and writing the notes. It's a very different, um, it's a very, very different process than going, well, this has to be done tomorrow and this is it. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think you know, the same goes to like quantizing and things like that. You know, if you really want to get serious about realistic markups, you have to do a whole other layer of realism and, and 
really precise programming that, you know, mockups coming out of any working composer that's successful, I think they do sound really good and they're expected to sound really good. That's unfortunately the uh, the level playing field we're in now. Um, but they are they are focused on a means to an end, which is getting to the point they're recorded as opposed to being the be all and end all themselves. And obviously, you know, as a communication tool to accurately um, describe to the filmmakers what you what you've written. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point too because when I talked to Teddy Shapiro, it was uh, we got into a debate about writing for the samples or or just writing the notes, you know, for for the players and for the movie. Right, exactly. You know, and uh, you're uh, yeah. You, I I imagine like Teddy would have said something like you're immediately limiting your possibilities by focusing on the on the sample because it is going to sound really fantastic in certain ways. And, you know, if you're doing a trailer um, or an advert or something where you, you need to get it done and you're absolutely probably really smart to, you know, it's the physics, you know, focus on the sweet spot and it's going to have, give people a good feeling, especially if you're dealing in quite neutral music. But if you're trying to un, unwrap something that's a little different, it can be problematic. And that's why, I mean, a lot of composers, they, they don't just switch up their libraries because they want to see what else is out there. They want to do it because they've been writing with the same sounds a lot. And they, there's a sort of sonic muscle memory that can happen. Hmm. You know, you play, obviously a lot of that's also in the notes themselves. If you're in a certain key and you play a fifth on the horns, if you're in C and you play a fifth on the horns, it's G and it's going to, it's going to start invoking a certain muscle memory sonically in your, in the way you write. And even more so if it's, you know, mod whatever, uh, 85 and expression 53, you're, you're kind of tying yourself into a very similar experience, you know, similar to muscle memory with your fingers. I think it's a sonic, you know, so much of what we do is projection. And in that moment where you, you're getting the feedback back from the sequencer, you're at your kind of most vulnerable. And I think that's when you kind of want to be you want to be in charge and not let the gear go, oh, yeah, I'm good at this. So do this for me because I'm good at this. I remember I need to get this done. And if I do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. You know, and I think, and obviously a lot of the time it's good to do that. It's good to get it done uh, and it's good to be efficient about it. But, you know, if you're trying to invent, I think samples can be, can be problematic. Gotcha. Well, I think you killed it here with Tech Talk, Anthony. Do you want to tell uh, the people what you have going on? Well, we're in a <laughs> we're in a uh, we're in a, a pandemic universe, so you know there's a lot less happening um, than there would normally be. Um, I'm on a project with Henry right now, which is really exciting. It's a it's an animated project, which will be you know more properly announced next year, um, and uh, you know there's some scoring sessions going on and. You know, obviously the logistics with how that is all done is a lot more complicated. It's so great that there are orchestras, you know, open again, but you know, there's distancing and, and, you know, a lot would, we're so lucky, I guess, that we have the tech to get through this right now. And obviously that applies to every business, but, you know, we're so lucky that, um, that we can do this and kind of, even that with the way that we're doing this podcast right now, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's a it's a really cool cool to see everybody kind of putting their thinking caps on in terms of how we can still 
make content and and do things you know as well as possible um so yeah so that's that's all happening and um yeah i mean next year is pretty pretty open i mean you know there's some there's some things in the pipeline but um but yeah no i'm i'm kind of i'm really excited to see what people think of promising young women and um the soundtrack's coming out on the 18th of december um the the score album uh is coming out on universal's backlot and i'm just you know it's it's interesting i mean you know the, the score has to kind of take a you know it, it's not like in a full pa- a full-blown john powell adventure score it by any means but it's still there's some there's some nice standout moments and um i'm just excited to you know for people to see the film and see what they think and um yeah see what happens yeah sounds good and uh anthony i hope you have a great rest of your day and it was a pleasure having you on the show yeah thank you so much for having me and um you know look forward to seeing you soon listening to this episode of composer talk if you like what we're doing feel free to follow us on instagram or facebook the show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible eric bard who's also a talented composer producer and mixer until next time this has been matthew wong